Um, If you've got your Bible, you can turn with us to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 10 through 18 today. If you're visiting with us, what we do is we go straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. We don't skip anything. And you just happen to be here on a day where this is the passage that we're in. We did verses 5 through 9 last week. And if you've been with us walking through the book of Hebrews, you've probably noticed by now that the flow of argument in the book of Hebrews is sometimes hard to follow. Um, as we study um, this section, um, we really, each section actually, as we study it, we need, to, we need to keep the big picture in focus, the context and, and why it is being written and what the author's intending to say. Because in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it's really easy to get down in the weeds and get lost and lose the context of what's being said and go off chasing rabbits. So before we read verses 10 through 18, I want to take just a second and remind you of the point of this whole section and what it is that we're looking at. Remember in chapter one, really the whole focus was Jesus is superior to the angels. That's the pretty much the crux of chapter one and chapter two, really. But chapter one got really into it, showing us seven Old Testament passages. And the author of Hebrews' argument is uh, to the Hebrew Christians who were suffering and being tempted to go back to Judaism, back to the law, back to the temple and the, and the synagogues and all that because they were suffering and all this persecution was going on. The idea, the point is the writer of Hebrews is telling the Hebrew Christians, don't go back. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than, we're going to see through Hebrews, everything. But in chapter 1, better than the angels, better than the message you heard from the angels. And at the beginning of chapter two, he gave this warning saying, we have to pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. We don't drift from what we've heard in the son of God, in Christ, in his message of the gospel. And then verses five through 18 in chapter two, which is where we're at right here, explain why God, the son had to become a man and suffer. So last week we looked at five through nine, verses five through nine, and in verse five, he began this argument by showing us God's original purpose was for mankind, humanity, to be crowned with glory and honor as God's perfect image bearers and have dominion over a perfect creation. He told us there in in verse 5, it it wasn't angels that were given dominion, that he subjected the world to come, he says in verse 5. And then he showed us this, but in verse 8, he also told us, we don't see that right now. We don't see everything subjected to him, he says in verse 8. We don't see creation and mankind the way it should be right now. And it's because of sin. And then in verse 9, if you remember, that's where we ended last week. He says this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Remember last week I told you the text puts no, it it, it doesn't separate we see and Jesus. It says, we see, it says, but him a little while lower than the angels, we see Jesus 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So in 8 and 9, he said, we don't see things the way they should be. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus did what Adam failed to do, what we've all failed to do. God, the Son, the eternal Son, became a man, died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, was raised from the dead, sat down, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. As a man, the Son of God received the glory and honor that humanity forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus did this, it says in verse 9, by the suffering of death. You see it? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that he might taste death for everyone. Now, in verses 10 through 18, which is our text for today, he's going to continue to explain why it was necessary. Why did it have to happen? Why was it necessary for the eternal, glorious Son of God, the second person of the Trinity from all eternity, God himself, to suffer as a man? Why? It had, why did it have to be this way? And he's going to answer, I'll give you the end at the beginning, just so you know where we're going, to bring sinners where he is, crowned with glory and honor, in perfect relationship with God, which was the intent of creation. Are y'all with me? Man, don't let me lose you in the first five minutes. It's going to be a rough day. All right, let's read verses 10 through 18. It says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the purpose, to bring many sons to glory, it was fitting for him to make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, makes holy, and those who are sanctified, those who are made holy, all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and here's the reason, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here's the reason, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. God, we do love you and we thank you for your word. God, I just pray that you would bring clarity today. It's a very complex and dense passage. I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds and that you would make sure that everything that gets said from this pulpit today is what you desire to be said. We want to hear your voice, not mine. So God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the world that these Hebrew Christians were living in at this point, suffering and persecuted, they were being persecuted and suffering by their Jewish family and kinsmen, uh, ostracized because of their faith in Jesus, 
Uh, they were also being persecuted at this time by Rome. They were being tempted to go back to Judaism, go back to the law of Moses, go back to the temple and the sacrifices and the synagogues and just go back to the way life used to be. Uh, Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire, so all the persecution would stop if you just go back. In this world that, that the Hebrew Christians lived in, the idea that, that the eternal God would lower himself to become a man and suffer and die is just crazy. That, that a divine, all-powerful being would be hungry or, or tired or, or humiliated, beaten, ridiculed, executed. I mean, literally everyone thought it was the most absurd and offensive idea anyone has ever come up with. To the Jews, the idea of God, the Messiah, dying on a cross was just blasphemy. It was disgraceful even to hint that the Lord of glory would be shamefully crucified. In fact, Deuteronomy says to be hung on a tree was to be under the curse of God. No way that could happen. To the Greeks and the Romans, they just thought it was ridiculous. I mean, a God who isn't powerful enough to keep himself from being humiliated and overpowered and executed, that kind of God isn't even worth following. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. So it's in this climate that the book of Hebrews is written. And the book of Hebrews is encouraging these persecuted Hebrew Christians, don't turn away from Christ. Don't go back. Jesus is better. You, yes, I know you're suffering persecution. You're going through trials. You're having a hard time just even keeping your head above water because of the, the world that you live in and the trials you find yourself in. But don't go back. Don't turn from Christ. And here in this text, the author shows them why God the Son had to suffer and what he accomplished through his suffering. The first thing that we see in this text is in, in most obvious in the reason, in the, in the flow of the text. Verse 10, he had to suffer to bring us to glory with him. He says, for it was fitting that he for whom, all, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Look at, the, look at the goal. What is he doing? He's bringing many sons to glory. The reason Jesus, the, the founder of our salvation is made perfect through suffering, is to bring us to glory. In verse 9, it said, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And verse 10 says, it is by his suffering and death that he's bringing us to where he is. He's bringing us to glory. The text says, to bring many sons to glory, it was fitting, meaning it was right, it was appropriate for God for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, to make the founder of salvation perfect. How? Through suffering. Here, Jesus called the founder of our salvation. If you have a different translation in your lap, it probably says the author of our salvation or the captain of our salvation or the pioneer of our salvation. The idea is that Jesus is the source of our salvation. He made the way for us and he provided the basis by which we can be saved. So the writer says in bringing sinners to glory in bringing many sons to glory, the way he phrases it, which was God's intent for humanity 
in a perfect creation, he says it was fitting, it was right, it was appropriate for him to be made perfect through suffering. Made perfect here isn't talking about Jesus' own righteousness or his sinlessness as if you know, Jesus wasn't perfect. He wasn't God until after he suffered. No, he means by suffering, the Son of God was made a perfect or complete sacrifice for sin. He was made perfect as a savior for mankind, as a substitute for mankind, as a mediator for mankind between God and man through the suffering that he endured to bring us to glory. God's perfect son had to undergo the punishment for sin that we deserve. He had to be our representative and he had to do so as a human being. Only then would he be the perfect mediator that we need for us to be brought to glory. God's nature requires perfect justice. Sin must have perfect punishment. Every single sin, even the sins that we think are, you know, they're not that bad. We all do those. You know, we're all, everybody's human. Nobody's perfect. No, if God is perfect and he is, God is a perfect judge and his justice must be absolutely 100% perfect. Every sin must have its due punishment. And since mankind sinned, humanity is the one who sinned and is sinning, a man, a human being must suffer that punishment to pay for that sin. Jesus didn't need to suffer for his own sin. He had none. He didn't need to suffer for his own salvation. He needed no salvation. He was made a perfect sacrifice, a perfect mediator for our salvation through the suffering as a human being so he could bring us to glory. Are y'all with me? Everybody tracking? Okay. Verse 9, remember we read it? It said, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, but for sinners to share in that glory, our sin has to be dealt with. A human being must satisfy the justice of God and represent us before the Father, before the judgment bar of God, or we cannot enter into his presence. God became a man to rescue what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And he became the way. He is the way. He became the way for us to be reconciled to God and dwell in the glory that he intended for mankind. God becoming a man and suffering in death, it might be scandalous and outrageous to to all of those around you, the writer might say to the Hebrew Christians. It It might be ridiculous to a watching world and to the highbrow religious crowd, but if humanity would be saved and brought to God perfect and holy in right relationship with him. Oh, it was fitting for him to suffer. Because God became a man and suffered, he's bringing us sinners, those born again in him to glory. And because God became a man, he's not ashamed to call us his family. He says, for he who sanctifies, sanctifies means 
who is making somebody holy, he's making holy, and those who are sanctified, those who are being made holy, all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. This describes the Savior and his redeemed people belonging to the same family. It says both Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and his people, the ones who are being sanctified, have one source. Some of your translations are going to say they're all of one father or they're all of one family. The Greek text just says they are all of one. He means that when the Son of God took upon the nature of a man, he became like us. He was and is an actual human being in the total sense of the word. He was not just God walking around in a human suit. He is fully God and fully man. Everything that makes you a human being, Jesus also is. Body, mind, and soul. And because he is fully human, a real man, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. We might say brothers and sisters. The book of Hebrews is a sermon, really. I've said that before, and we're going to see it as we walk through it. It's exhorting the people not to be ashamed of Christ in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of a world that is totally against them, to not turn away from Christ. Here the author is saying to these, these Hebrew Christians in this, in this suffering, in this persecution, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He became one of us. Listen, for, for sinners who are broken and hurting, struggling to keep your head above water in a fallen world, battling your flesh, battling sin, failing, and then coming back to the cross and receiving forgiveness in the gospel, being shamed by everyone around them for their faith in Jesus, these Hebrew Christians were, they need to hear this. If you're born again, he is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you're not, if you're born again. Now listen, if you're not born again, if you're religious folks and you don't care nothing about following Jesus, you don't, the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell you, you, you don't open somebody else's mail. I'm not talking to you. If you've been born again, even in your struggles, even in your fight against sin, even in your failures, even in the hardest times of your life when, you're no, when you're, all that's inside of you wants to follow Jesus and, and you keep failing and you keep, uh, you keep trying again and you keep over and over and over again and the world and your flesh and the devil seem like they're just, just surrounding you at all times. He is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. You need to hear this. Why is he not ashamed to call you brothers, to call you sisters? Is it because you're just so worthy? No, because he's covered you in his righteousness if you've been born again. He's brought you to glory, indwelled you with his spirit. He's not ashamed to call you family. Don't be ashamed to call him Lord. Now, here we're going to get into the weeds just a little bit with verses 12 and 13. I told the first service, you may want to check out for five minutes or you may just want to listen intently. I suggest listening intently, but that's just me. <laughs> verses 12 and 13 
are proofs that he gives to prove that the son is not ashamed to call us brothers. And to do so, he quotes two Old Testament passages. The first one he quotes is verse 12. It's Psalm 22, 22. So if you want to write that down, Psalm chapter 22, verse 22. He says in verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's from Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, if you go read it, it's, it's beautiful. It, it's, it foretells the crucifixion in, in just vivid detail from Jesus' point of view. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same words Jesus uttered from the cross. And most of the psalm, uh, Psalm 22, is... The sufferer describing his suffering. And it is a view from the cross down to the fact that the psalmist even says they, they parted my, they cast lots for my garments. But toward the end of Psalm 22, beginning in verse 22, which is what is quoted here, the psalm turns and the sufferer no longer describes his suffering, but instead begins to praise God for hearing his cry. In, in the psalm, he rejoices that, that God has answered his call for help and says, I will praise God with the brothers in the sanctuary, in the congregation. The author of Hebrews puts the psalmist's words on the lips of Jesus. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. Jesus is saying to the Father here, the, the ar argument goes in Hebrews, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will sing your praise. The point of him quoting this verse, Psalm 22, 22, is to say Jesus is not ashamed to call us family. Look, he does it right here. He says he is part of the congregation. Jesus is part of the congregation of the redeemed singing praise to the Father. The victory for which Jesus praises the Father is not his alone. He brought us with him. He's the firstborn among many brethren, the Bible says. He joins us to himself in salvation. And we rejoice in the Father alongside him. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I will praise, I will tell of your name to my brothers, he calls us. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The second quote he uses to prove that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers is from Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 17 and 18. That's verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. That's Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Now, at first glance, this quote from Isaiah, it doesn't seem that relevant, does it? It doesn't seem that relevant to the argument that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. In Isaiah 8, the speaker was, of course, Isaiah. He proclaimed his trust in the Lord and called the people to trust in the Lord as Israel was being threatened by regional powers and by the Assyrian Empire. But once again, the author of Hebrews puts this text on the lips of Jesus. He's saying, the son says, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is saying this in the argument of the Hebrews. Now, you may wonder, how can the writer of Hebrews just take something Isaiah said and make it what Jesus said? Well, the passage in Isaiah 8 comes right in the middle of a big section of prophecies about the Messiah. 
Isaiah chapter 7 is where you have, Behold, a virgin will bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we have, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. And right in the middle, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews quotes this text as the Messiah himself. Hebrews quotes this text as the son saying, I will put my trust in the father with the children God has given me. When the Son of God came as a man, dwelt among men, he himself trusted in the Father perfectly. He showed us what perfect faith looks like. He showed us how perfect trust is lived out, even in the midst of suffering that he endured. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because as a man, he trusted in the Lord, just as he calls us to do. It's hard for us sometimes to comprehend the fact that Jesus trusted in the Father because Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. But you must remember, the Son took upon himself a full and complete human nature made like us in every way. He lived as a real man. He trusted in the Father. He prayed to the Father. He worshiped the Father. So as a real human being, He's not ashamed to claim us as his family, as his children. That's why he says, I will trust in the Lord, I and the children God has given me. The children God has given him are the many sons being brought to glory. They are the ones who are being sanctified, as it said. They're those who are born again in Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us family because he became fully human to be the founder of our salvation. You with me? Everybody understand? Good, because I'm not going back over it. (laughs) Jesus had to suffer as a man to deliver us from the power of death. It says, since therefore the children, referencing the verse above, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, this is how, through death, Death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We, the children, are flesh and blood creatures. So to bring salvation to us, the Son of God likewise partook or became a sharer in flesh and blood. God the Son, who existed from all eternity past as the Son, became something He had never been before. He truly became a human being. That means He was beset by the same physical weaknesses, the limitations all humans endure. He got hungry. He got tired. He was sorrowful. He even subjected Himself to death. He did so not because he was under death's power or unable to overcome death. He did so because by dying through death, it says in verse 14, he would conquer the one who has the power of death. To free man from judgment, the judgment of death, a perfect sacrifice must die. Only God could be perfectly righteous. Fallen humanity could never be. But God can't die. God had to become a man to bring salvation to mankind. 
Now, what's all this? So everybody always asks, what's, the, what's all the business about the devil having the power of death? Now, before we go off into a bunch of flights of fancy thinking the devil, just, the devil decides when people die, please remember our God is sovereign even over death. 1 Samuel 2.6 says, the Lord kills, the Lord makes alive. Deuteronomy 32.39, God says, I, even I am he, there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive. Our lives and our deaths are in God's hands and no other. Death, however, is our enemy. Death is not supposed to be here in this creation. Death was introduced as a judgment because of our sin. Death is the wages of sin. So death only has power over us because of our sin. Death is only a weapon Satan uses against us because sin separates us from our God and places us under the wrath of God. Satan is the accuser of God's people. He tempts us to sin. He uses our sin against us, trying to keep us under the judgment of death separated from God. The devil, therefore, has the power of death only as long as our sin separates us from God. When that is taken away, the power of death is taken away. Through a death... Jesus removed this power, destroyed him. Here is the, the word is really not annihilate or cast out of existence. It's to render powerless. He rendered him powerless. Through death, Jesus rendered him powerless who had power over death. A death was necessary to pay the sin debt that we owe. So Christ became human precisely so he could die. By dying, the Savior satisfied the perfect justice of a holy God, the law of God, and he removed the separation between the sinner and God. Satan has no more power for the one who's born again to wave the threat of death in our face. Physical death is no threat. Dying in Christ just brings us closer to the glory which is intended for us anyway. So Jesus' death also delivers us from slavery to the fear of death. Do you see it? Verse 15. Do you, do you, do you see it? Okay, thanks, thanks, thanks. The founder of our salvation, the founder of our salvation stormed the gates of death, conquered that stronghold, and now invites us to dine with him there in his glory. He prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemy. I read that somewhere. <laughs> Jesus partook of flesh and blood so that through his death, he would destroy the power and the judgment of death. Another reason that the son had to suffer as a man is to become our merciful and faithful high priest. It says, for surely, it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And here's why, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became a man because it's not angels he came to save. Verse 16, the word help is really more literally take hold of. 
So surely it's not angels that he takes hold of, but it's the offspring of Abraham that he takes hold of. He didn't come to save, save angels. To the angels that fell with Satan, God offers no path of redemption whatsoever. No savior is given for them. God never became an angel to die on behalf of angels. But he did for us. The offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3.29 told us, if you're in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. The job of the high priest in the Old Testament was to be the people's representative before the presence of God and to bring a sacrifice for sin before God for the people so that a holy, perfect, just, righteous God could dwell in the midst of these sinners. But the high priest in the tabernacle, in the temple, he was an imperfect mediator had to be done over and over and over again. It was never finished. We need a mediator who is both God and man. Only God could fulfill the terms of his covenant. Only God could be righteous and sinless to be the sacrifice we need to be saved. But it was mankind who sinned, so a man must make atonement for sin. Our high priest had to be God and man. Jesus had to be made like his people in every respect because we need a high priest. We need a mediator who can put one hand on sinful humanity and one hand on a holy, righteous God who is a consuming fire and reconcile us together. Because Jesus, God in flesh, suffered as a man. He's able to be our perfect mediator, our perfect high priest, both merciful to our plight and faithful in service to God. That's why the writer says our high priest is merciful and faithful, look at it, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big word. It just means he turns away the wrath. Of God. He turns away the wrath of God for sin. And in that statement, the last line of verse 17, we see the whole point of this section. We see the whole reason God the Son had to suffer as a man. It was to pay the penalty for our sin and turn away the wrath of God from us. That's how he brings many sons to glory. That's how he makes his people holy. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. That's how he destroys the power of death. He pays for our sins as our merciful and faithful high priest, bringing himself perfectly God, perfectly man, as the only sacrifice for sin. And he turns away the wrath of God by receiving that wrath upon himself. Jesus was our mediator, and Jesus still is our mediator today. He didn't just accomplish our salvation and then withdraw from his people. He is not an unapproachable and distant deity off in the galaxy somewhere. Because he suffered as a man 
to be our merciful and faithful high priest. The last verse we're going to look at says, he's able to help you right now in your suffering. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Finally, all this in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, comes together and we see what the writer's point is. The Hebrew Christians are suffering. They're suffering and they're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They're being tempted to turn away from Christ just to make life bearable so I can get through the day without this hardship and this trial. Because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help you as you are suffering for his name. The writer reminds them, Jesus saved you, Jesus delivered you, he brought you to glory, made you holy, defeated the power of death, and because he suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help you right now as you're being tempted to turn away from him, as you're suffering through these things. Jesus knows firsthand the anguish of your suffering. He suffered the same temptations and trials that all human beings do. Your high priest knows your trials. He knows your suffering, not just because he's God and he knows everything, but because he himself lived them. He was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. He suffered as he walked through this fallen world just as we do. So now... The God-man seated on the throne of glory, given the kingdom and dominion, is with you. He's able to help you to be faithful, to endure the temptation that you're going through. Listen, we always, all of us, including myself, we have a bad case of the what-ifs. Worry about what if. You know, what if, what if this trial that I'm going through doesn't turn out right? What if this happens next week and, and, and I, I don't know how I'm going to endure it? What if this bad thing happens? What if, what if what, what, when, we, when we look at the coming trials or we look at maybe a bleak future as these Hebrew Christians were looking forward to seeing nothing but, but suffering and pain in their life, we just say... I can't do that. I can't face that. I don't, I don't know how I can endure those things. Christ doesn't send you help for tomorrow until tomorrow gets here. You're given manna just for today. You may look into your heart right now and say, you know, I, I, know, I know myself. I know my heart. There's no way that I could... There's no way that I could handle the persecution that the people on the other side of the world are going through right now. That's true. You know why you can't handle it? Because you're not being persecuted right now. God hasn't called you to endure that yet. He might. And if he does call you to it, he will equip you to be faithful in it. You may be suffering right now. You may be afraid of what may happen tomorrow, not knowing what you can, not knowing if you can stand through it or not, endure through it, be faithful to him from what, in what you see is coming to you. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. He will help his people when they need it. 
The Spirit will fill you and strengthen you to be faithful to what God calls you to. There's no temptation come to man whereby he hasn't given us a way of escape. A great example of this is what some people call dying grace. You ever heard of that? Dying grace? I was a hospital chaplain on the ninth floor of Jackson Madison County General Hospital in West Tennessee for six years, five years, something like it. The ninth floor was the palliative care floor. People go there to die. Seen many, 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 many people die. Thousands, probably. Seen the strongest of men who never in their life feared death face it with abject terror. I've seen the terror of death break through the morphine and the palliative care stuff. I've also seen the frailest of little old ladies, not strong enough to lift their arm off the bed, come to the moment of death with a joy and an anticipation as if the greatest thing in the world is about to happen. As a new chaplain at the hospital, I remember leaving the room of a faithful Christian who died. Um, And she died with just the most incredible joy and peace. And it was was the most amazing thing that I have ever seen in my life. Just happiness and excited. It was just incredible. And as we were leaving the room after she had passed, I said to the senior chaplain, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. (laughs) I don't have the faith to face death that way. There's no way I could face death like like she just did. And he said, of course you can't. You know why? You're not dying. When you get ready to cross that threshold, Christ will give you everything that you need to be faithful in that moment. He is our help and our strength. We don't have to worry about the what ifs. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. He, because he suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are, not were, not will be, who are being tempted. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. He is able to help when you are tempted, when you are suffering, when you're going through trials. You have a high priest who is merciful and faithful. He suffered in your place. He's faithful to bring you to glory. He's faithful to save your soul, to wash your sins away, to present you holy and blameless before the judgment bar of God, to raise you from the dead. And you think he's not powerful enough to help you get through tomorrow? The only question that we have to ask is, Is Jesus my high priest? That's the only question because he is able. Is he your high priest today? He calls you to come and dine with him. I I got to thinking as I was preaching this morning, and I'm not going to make it long because I know we're ready to leave. In the early service, this might be, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 might be my favorite verse in all of scripture. I never thought about it before, but it may be my favorite verse. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, 
means having a heavy burden on you. And he says, and I will give you rest. He says, my burden is light. My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, and, and this is the part that just blows my mind every time, every time I read it, every time I think about it. He says, you will find rest for your soul. He invites you today to be part of his kingdom, part of his family, his child, the high priest to represent you before God. And the only thing that you must do is repent of your sin, turn toward him, trust in Jesus. That's it. That he died for me, that his payment was for me, and I believe it with all that I am, all in the best way that I know how. I trust that Jesus paid for my sin and that he has cleansed me and given me his righteousness. I don't deserve it. I don't know how he does it, but I trust that he did and that it is finished. And you will be born again. He is not a God who is far off and distant from you. He's not a God that's ashamed of you. If you are his child, he is here. Receive him today. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And the truth of you sending your son to die for us. You sending your son to bear the penalty that I deserve. Jesus, we glorify your name that you would take on a human nature in the most amazing act of love in the history of the universe and that you would give your life to save me, to save us, to call us brothers and sisters, to stand in our place. God, We owe you praise and glory and honor. You are worthy of far more than we can ever give you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that is maybe trying to be right with you by doing good works or or, or reforming your life or, or stopping this thing or doing the other thing, God, I pray that you would show them the futility of that, that we are sinners by nature and that the only salvation that you have given is Jesus, the God-man who has died as a propitiation for our sin to bring us to glory and that you would show them this free gift, this invitation to come and dine with the master. Oh, you are good, and you are glorious. God, I pray that you would save souls today and that you would help us to be faithful today. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand down here at the front. If you want to come, please do. I'd love to pray with you. Will you stand with me as we sing?